You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. And with that, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. As you do so, I must admit, I am a little nervous about approaching this text with you this morning. Because this is an incredibly significant psalm. In several ways, we are, we are walking on sacred ground today. I mean, this is a special psalm. It is the only psalm quoted by all four gospel writers. And for the Jews, this is a, an incredibly important psalm. It is the climax of a dramatic part of their heritage. According to the Talmud, they would sing a collection of psalms called the Hallel at every Passover. Hallel is, is where we get, get our word uh, hallelujah, Hallel. It, it means praise. And, and these psalms focus on praising God for his deliverance. There are six of them, starting with Psalm 113 and ending with Psalm 118. And this is the most, this is perhaps one of the most, if not the most important psalm in the entire Psalter. It is nestled between the shortest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 117, and the largest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. It also contains the middle verses of the entire Bible. I mean, don't, don't worry, I didn't spend all week counting them, but supposedly, from what I have read, there are 31,174 verses in the Bible. And if that's true, then Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, are numbers 15,587 and 15,588. Now, there's nothing truly special about that, except that God in His providence decided to put this truth that we are about to look at this morning at the very center of your Bible. So let's look at this truth and see what God has to show us today. Look at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Right away, we see that this is a psalm of thanksgiving. We are told to praise the Lord and to give Him thanks because His love endures forever. Now, you'll notice that there isn't a superscription at the top of this psalm. Uh, we, we don't know who wrote it or even when it was written. But the contextual evidence of the psalm itself and its placement here within the Psalter and within the Hallel would tell us that it was most likely written by a king, probably written by a king, one of Israel's kings back in the day. And as we will see, this king found himself in a really bad spot because he describes a national crisis where he needed deliverance and the Lord delivered him. Hence, this psalm is a thankful response of praise, encouraging others to thankfully respond in praise. So we're going to look at five reasons to thank God. That's five reasons God deserves your praise. Reason number one, God has provided a stellar reputation. A stellar reputation. Look at verse one again. In the next few verses, he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 1 provides two big picture umbrella statements for thanking God. He says, we should thank God because he is good and his love is timeless. He is good and his love is timeless. Some say a man is only as good as his reputation. And they say that because what we do and how we do it matters. It matters in every part of life. Listen, God takes his reputation very seriously, very seriously. And scripture testifies to his goodness because he is good. There is no evil in God. There never has been and there never will be. I mean, think about it. This God has never lied. He has never cheated. He has never stolen. He has never coveted or abused. He has never abandoned. He has never gossiped. He's never complained. He has never needed to ask for forgiveness, ever. He's never made a wrong choice or backpedaled because he's good and his love never stops. It never stops. Notice who's being addressed in verse 2. He says, let Israel say. In verse 3, let the house of Aaron say. In verse 4, let those who fear the Lord say. In other words, that's pretty much everyone, right? Everyone in the house, everyone who enters the house of the Lord. Israel refers to the congregation. Uh, the house of Aaron refers to the priests, the spiritual leaders of the congregation. And those who fear the Lord refers to everyone who worships God, even those who go beyond Israel, those people who worship him, like pig-eating Gentiles like you and me those that, that extend beyond the temple, like everyone who fears the Lord, who loves the Lord, who worships Him, who serves Him with their whole heart. Let everyone who is a God-following believer praise the Lord. So he wraps his arms around every believer, and three times he says, His steadfast love endures forever. That is to say, the goodness of God never stops. It never stops, never stops. It just keeps on going. It's the steady flow of covenant faithfulness and affection. So he begins with this call to thank God for his stellar reputation by saying, let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, and I would add, let First Baptist Church say, his steadfast love endures forever because God is good and his love is timeless. His love is timeless. It doesn't just exist in days of old. It doesn't exist in the Old Testament. It doesn't just exist in the New Testament. It exists today, the same as it was then, and it always will be the same. His love endures forever. Number two, God has provided a strengthening response a strengthening response. Look at verses five through seven. He says, out of my distress, I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. This king calls 
on the Lord in his distress. And that word distress, it means tightly pressed. It means uncomfortably confined. I, I, I remember growing up in Indiana. We would drive to Bedford to a place called Blue Springs Caverns and spend the night in a cave. As a kid, I, I loved everything about it. It was great. The bats, the blind critters, it was, it was awesome. But there was one thing that I didn't love. When you're forced to crawl on your belly, wearing a hard hat, through an opening that might be about this big for any length of time at all, it, it feels like an eternity. And closing your eyes doesn't help because you're already in a cave. It's dark. That's the feeling this word distress conveys. It's trapped in the dark. It's squeezed between two rocks. Our hero king is surrounded by trouble, but, but look at how quickly the Lord delivers him. On the next line in the same verse, he practically shouts, The Lord answered me and set me free. He says, if God is on my side, if he is my helper, then what could I possibly be afraid of? And the same is true for us, believer. It is true for us. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? You'd have to be a fool to pick a fight with God. I mean, who wants to go toe-to-toe with the God of the universe? Listen, I'm not a betting man, but I'll put everything in on God. So how do we know? And this is the question then, how do we know if God is actually on our side or not? I mean, does, does being an American just automatically put God on our side because we say in God we trust, we put that on our money? Is that how it works? No. No. How do we know if, if God is actually on our side? Well, it's simple. Just ask yourself the question, am I on his? Am I on his? Am I on God's side? Do I know the God of the Bible well enough to say that I am God's man? I am God's woman. Can you say I have been bought with a price and I am not my own? I I don't live for me anymore. I live for God. If that's true for you, then you have nothing to be afraid of. Absolutely nothing to be afraid of. I mean, what can man do to you? What can a mere mortal possibly do to one of God's children when they they turn to him in their distress and, and the Almighty shows up? I mean, what could they possibly do to you? You know, man can, I mean, we can say that, right? But, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, man can still do a lot to us. I mean, man can do quite a bit. Um, And and man can certainly hurt us deeply. But it's all temporary. It's all here for a, a brief flicker of light and it's gone. I mean, they can beat us. They can disable us. They can separate us from our families. They can even kill us. But in the end... Ultimately, in the end, the Christian wins. The Christian wins. He who has placed his faith in a good God of timeless love will always triumph, always triumph in the end. Even the distress of death, even that doesn't become as scary as it once was when the God of life has promised you eternal life in his name. So here in this psalm, the king, he's in trouble. And and, and the Lord is, is there, and he has called out to the Lord in his distress. And thankfully, the Lord has arrived, and he has lifted his head with this strengthening response. Number three, God has provided a superior 
refuge, a superior refuge. For the next several verses, he provides the details of his distress and his deliverance. He says in verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So he introduces the drama with these parallel phrases that sum up the lesson. When hard times come, don't look around, look up. Trusting in men and power will only get you so far. It is better to hold up and hunker down in the Lord. Why? Because he is the superior refuge. Here, here's the situation. This is what, this is what our hero, our king, is, is facing here. He says in verse 10, All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Uh, This isn't some soft trouble or light affliction that he's dealing with. This is worse than walking outside and and discovering a parking ticket on your car. Okay, this is a bad situation. This is serious. This is a life-threatening danger. His country is surrounded by enemies on every side like bees, and, and they are pushing hard, and he is falling off of his throne. But the Lord helps him at the end of verse 13. So he says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation. And in the tents of the righteous, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. You see, this is the natural reaction of someone who has been saved by God. Their hearts burst open with songs of gladness and joy and thankfulness to God because God has swept in and valiantly saved them. And when the Lord is your strength, when the Lord is your song and your salvation, you can't help but confidently assert what he says here in verses 17 and 18. You can't help but join with him in saying, I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Martin Luther had verse 17 written on the wall of his study. He called it a masterpiece. And he said this about it. He said, quote, He, meaning the psalmist, so immerses himself in life that death is swallowed up by life and disappears completely because he clings with a firm faith to the right hand of God. Thus all the saints have sung this verse and will continue to sing it to the end. So far as the world is concerned, they die. Yet their hearts say with a firm faith, I shall not die, but live. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he he flew open cockpit biplanes during World War I. What an awesome job that would be. And someone once asked him, are you afraid to fly in those planes? To which he replied, the same verse, Psalm 118, verse 17, only he rephrased it into a rhyme, saying, ours is not to fly and die, ours to live 
and testify. Look, hard times will come. Hard times will come. And the Lord's discipline is severe, like verse 18 tells us. But God disciplines those he loves. And he will not let the grave take them away from him. It's not going to happen. Nothing will take you away from him. Once he's got you, he's got you. If you trust in the Pope, be afraid. If you trust in a plane, be afraid. But if you trust in the Lord, you have nothing, nothing to be afraid of. Because God is your superior refuge. You have every right to be fearless. Every right to be fearless. Because you have been backed by God. Well, so far we have seen every reason to thank God. Because God has provided a stellar reputation, a strengthening reply, and a superior refuge. Number four, He has provided a stunning redemption. A stunning redemption. This is where it really gets fun. Look at verses 19 through 25. He says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. This delivered king says, open the gates of the temple. I want to enter into his presence, and I want to thank him directly. Why? Verse 21, because the Lord answered him and became his salvation. And here's the stunning part. Starting in verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the stone being Israel, the underdog, and the builders being the powers and the rulers and the authorities of the surrounding nations. One commentator had this to say. He wrote, As the nations swept through the land to establish their empires, they considered the little country of Judah to be of no value to them. They rejected it and would have destroyed it. But now that which was rejected by them as worthless has been chosen by God. It not only was restored to the land, but was also made the center of God's theocratic program, and Babylon no longer existed. It's true. And to this day, men still don't have an explanation for how Israel could survive the exile, let alone become the center of the Middle Eastern world once again. But we're told how. We're told how it happened here in verses 23 and 24. He says, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He says, the Lord has completely saved, completely restored, and completely delivered. Today is a good day, so let's rejoice in it. Now, I know, verse 24 sometimes shows up on wedding invitations and in children's songs at VBS, and that's fine. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But I need to point out that this verse isn't talking about your special day. I hate to break it to you, but this verse isn't about your special day or getting the most out of your day just because it's today. 
It's not about fixing your attitude or having a good day today simply because God made it. While yes, God made every day, and yes, every day in that sense is special, verse 24 isn't about the day I married my wife, as special as that day was. This verse can't mean that because this verse never meant that. So what does this verse mean? What is it actually talking about? Well, in its context, it is referring to a very specific day, the day of salvation. The day of salvation. He's saying the day God delivered us, the day he saved us, the, the, day, that, the day that God made to, to restore and to redeem and, and, to, and to bring salvation to his people from distress and danger, that day was a good day. That was a day that God made. So let's rejoice and let's be glad in that day. And he goes on to say, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. He prays for salvation and success, looking back and looking ahead. The king's confidence is once again found in the Lord. What a stunning, stunning redemption. At this point, who, who wouldn't give thanks to the Lord? I mean, after all, he has provided so much for those who trust in him. He has given a stellar reputation, a strengthening reply, a superior refuge, and a stunning redemption. And so it is only fitting for this psalm to end with a satisfying result. A satisfying result. Look at the rest of the psalm. He says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The scene that we have here at the end is that of a festival. The king and those who have been saved along with him have made their way to the temple. The priest welcomed them by saying, Be blessed, be blessed in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, be blessed. When he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that is to say the blessing comes with divine authority. The, the blessing received is tied back to God's stellar reputation, his good name. If it comes in the name of the Lord, then it's good. It's guaranteed. It has been sealed by God himself and his stellar reputation. And, and we see in verse 27 again that the Lord is God and that this is his doing that he has made his light to shine upon us. We are reminded, as we have been throughout this entire psalm, that God is the one who sovereignly orchestrates all things for deliverance or for destruction. And the psalm ends the way it began, full circle. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. What a beautiful psalm. What a beautiful psalm of thanksgiving and praise. This is, this is what this psalm is all about. Uh, praising God for his salvation, for his deliverance, for his redemption of those who belong to him. 
those that God has promised himself to in covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. This divine preservation and protection of God's people is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's part one, the meaning of the text. So let's pause for a moment. Let's come up for air. Let's catch our breaths before moving on to part two, Passion Week's lesson. And before we get into it, let me just give you a little bit of background as to what I'm, uh, I'm, what I'm about to share with you. While I was in seminary, Dr. Greg Harris, one of my favorite professors, would continually call us tour guides. He would remind us that our job is not to invent new doctrines, but to follow the old trails of Scripture and to point out wonders along the way. I was at a point in my seminary career where I was tired, I was overworked, and uh, to be quite honest with you, the biblical languages were sucking the life right out of me. The excitement for God's Word, at least in my life, was waning. Thankfully, I needed another elective, and my advisor just dropped me into Greg Harris's Selected General Epistles class. It was an exposition class there at the school, and I didn't know it at the time, but I really needed this class for more than just credit hours because it changed me. I remember sitting in class one day frantically taking notes because he he didn't allow electronics in the classroom when he took us on a journey through one of these trails of Scripture, and he started in 1 Peter 2. So go ahead and turn there with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2. By the time we were done traveling through this trail, I was in tears. It was embarrassing. It was really embarrassing. I was just bawling in class, and uh, my love for God's Word had been energized. I, I couldn't wait to get home and call my friends back home and, and share the same journey with them. So I'm excited to be your tour guide today. Uh, it's Palm Sunday, the start of that period that the church calls Passion Week. From Jesus' triumphal entry to his crucifixion, Psalm 118 takes center stage, and I can't think of a more appropriate time for us to walk that old trail of Scripture together. So with Psalm 118 in mind, let's turn our attention to Peter. And we'll begin in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame or will be disappointed. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Wow. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a good message. This is a wonderful message. The stone, the stone is the second most frequently used metaphor for the Messiah in the entire Bible, all through scripture. You can probably guess what the first is. 
what the first metaphor for the Messiah would be, the first picture, first word picture for the Messiah. The, the most frequently used one would be the lamb, the lamb. And, and, and it's a good one. The lamb is certainly a good picture. It's the most used picture for, for Christ, for the Messiah throughout the Bible. But often the stone gets overlooked. The stone is number two. Peter quotes three of the messianic stone passages here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice in verse 6, the stone is referred to as a him and not an it. I mentioned earlier that the stone of Psalm 118 represented Israel, and it does. It most certainly does. But the Jews also saw this psalm as prophetic and messianic because the Messiah is constantly being referred to as a stone all throughout Scripture going all the way back to Genesis 49. So Peter isn't quoting arbitrary Old Testament references to rocks here. Now these are just a sampling of the many stone prophecies of Scripture. And these particular references that he decides to use here, they certainly help his argument. They certainly carry his, his logic along. But they are also very personal for Peter, especially Psalm 118 because it reflects a lesson that Jesus himself, the stone himself, had personally taught Peter just days leading up to his crucifixion. It is a lesson that Jesus teaches all who believe. And and it is simply this. Here's the lesson. The stone doesn't change. He stays the same. It's your relationship to the stone that changes everything. It is your relationship to the stone that changes everything. The Hallel, and particularly Psalm 118, it shows up multiple times, many times during Passion Week. And Christ used it to teach Peter and John a lesson they would never forget. He does so on at least five occasions. So let's follow the trail by tracing this psalm through the text. Appearance number one. Where does it first show up? First shows up at the triumphal entry the triumphal entry. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Now many of us are familiar with the events of the triumphal entry. Honestly, why we call it the triumphal entry, that's beyond me. If anything, it should probably be called the humble entry or the lowly entry. And I'll explain what I mean by that here in just a bit. But the scene is familiar to most of us. I mean, you have over two million Jews who have gathered at Jerusalem to celebrate the week of Passover. And, and that's a conservative number. They, they estimate that there were far more than that, but at least two million Jews. Of those two million Jews, you have a great multitude, so at least a few hundred thousand who are participating in this scene that we see here in Matthew 21. Far more people than just the dozen or so that we typically see in movies. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people are gathered together and participating in this event of the triumphal entry. And Jesus is seen entering the city on the back of a young donkey. And I want to call your attention to an important detail that is provided for us here in verse 9. Matthew writes, And the crowds that went before him and that were following him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. This wasn't some random chant 
by the Jewish crowds made up on the spot. They were quoting Psalm 118. They knew the content and the context for the psalm well. They had grown up singing it. This was a very popular song. They would sing it every year at the Passover, and they would sing it often throughout the year because it was such an important psalm to them. Everyone knew this psalm. They knew it really well. This is, this is the ancient Jewish equivalent of like jingle bells at Christmas time. I mean, everyone knew it. So they, they knew what they were saying whenever they said this. By singing it here, they were recognizing Jesus and praising him as their Messiah, the one who would be the Lord's anointed, who would bring deliverance and would ultimately transform their status from a rejected rock to a cornerstone of the nations. They're shouting Hosanna, which means save now, which is both a praise and a prayer. But they don't even realize at this point that the countdown to Calvary has begun. That's the first appearance. Hundreds of thousands, people shouting Psalm 118 towards Jesus and his disciples as he enters into Jerusalem. Appearance number two is with the parable of the tenants. The parable of the tenants. Now, we discover in Mark's gospel that the next day, the very next day after the triumphal entry, Jesus enters the temple and he throws out the money changers for the second time in his earthly ministry. That event is also described for us here in the same chapter, Matthew 21. So you don't have to turn very far in verses 12 through 17. It was then on the third day of Passion Week that Jesus went back to the temple only to get jumped by the priest and the elders of the people. The rest of Matthew 21 records his response with indicting questions and a couple of harsh parables. And let's look at how he concludes the parable of the tenants there in verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Much like the crowds a couple days before, Jesus quotes Psalm 118. And he goes on to explain that God's judgment will fall upon these religious leaders because they have rejected God's son. You see, when he asks, have you never read in the scriptures? He's not addressing ignorance. He's calling out their unbelief. And they got angry because they knew exactly what he was saying. And this brings up a very important truth about the Messiah. A very important truth related to Psalm 118 and what we experience with Christ in Passion Week. And that is that the Messiah had to be rejected before he could be accepted. He had to be rejected before he could be accepted. The chief priests and the elders were the builders, and they were rejecting the stone. Note the pattern, suffering first, then glory. That's appearance number two. Let's flip ahead a couple more chapters to the right, to Matthew 23, for the, for the third appearance, uh, for appearance number three, Jesus' lament. Jesus' lament. His conflict with the religious leaders continues through chapters 22 and 23. So this is still the third day. After destroying the Pharisees with a series of woes and, and pointing out their hypocrisy, look at what Jesus says at the very end, starting in verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus quotes the same line from Psalm 118 that the crowd shouts during his so-called triumphal entry. Why were the crowds shouting the, their praises of Psalm, of Psalm 118 as Jesus entered? It's because they thought that he was their Messiah. And yet, in Matthew 23, we see that Jesus didn't accept their praise as a legitimate fulfillment of Psalm 118. He couldn't because the rest of Psalm 118, the rest of the psalm, especially the redemption part, hadn't been accomplished yet. And this had to be really confusing for them as they thought, what do you mean you, you won't see me again until we praise you with the praises of Psalm 118? Didn't we just do that? I mean, you were there. It was a couple days ago. You know, a few hundred thousand people were all singing praises to you in Psalm 118. We just did that. Why, what do you mean you're not going to see me again until, until we do that to you again? I don't get it. Well, essentially, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you won't see me again until the real triumphal entry happens. Right now, you still don't have a clue what's going on. You should. You should know what's going on, but you would rather kill your prophets than listen to them. So the next time I enter the city, not humbly, but triumphantly, you can quote the scriptures to me then, and I will accept your praise as your Messiah. But that thing that happened just a couple of days ago, yeah, that doesn't count. You, you can't have the proclamation and the rejection of the Messiah at the same time. You can't. And the people had not rejected him yet, not in the fullness, fullest sense of him suffering and dying on the cross. You can't have both. He had to be rejected before he could be accepted because that's the pattern. Suffering first, then glory. And we need to be thankful for that pattern. I mean, think about it. If Christ came to rule before he came to redeem, we would all be in trouble. I mean, none of us would be saved. I mean, how thankful should we be that Jesus came to suffer at his first coming so he could return in glory at his second coming? So Psalm 118 has already played a significant role in the events of Passion Week. Hundreds of thousands have recited it back to Jesus in praise. Jesus recites it back to the religious leaders in the temple as grounds for judgment. He then recites it again in rejection of the people's praise while looking forward to a time after the cross when they will praise him as their Messiah. But at this point, Peter still doesn't get the lesson. So let's look at appearance number four. We'll need to flip over to Luke's account for this one to Luke's account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, to Luke 22, where we find the Passover preparation, the Passover preparation in Luke 22. Now, this one isn't as explicit as the others. If you blink, you might miss it. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Now that's interesting. Why would Jesus send his two most important disciples, these significant future church leaders, to go prepare a meal? Why would he do that? 
I mean, he knows that he's about to be crucified. Shouldn't he be preparing them to be the great leaders of the church that they are about to become? Well, in a way, he is doing that because, you see, in those days, the people would take their lambs to the temple to slay them. And and above them, during that event, above them, there was this massive Levitical choir that would sing, you guessed it, the Hallel. The congregation would join in the liturgy by repeating the first line after each psalm after the choir sang it. And then they would follow up each line with hallelujah, hallelujah, hallel el-yah, hallel-yah. In other words, praise God, worship God, hallelujah. But when it came time to kill the lamb, each participant, not the priests, each person who had brought the lamb, they would kill it themselves. They would, slit the, they would slit the throat. They would kill the lamb on their own. They would do it together at the blast of silver trumpets, while the attending priest stood by in two rows with bowls in hand to catch the blood. Each bowl would then be passed down the line and, and eventually poured out at the base of the altar. They would then conclude the ceremony with Psalm 118. And the entire congregation would repeat verses 25 and 26. They were very special to the Jewish people. Along with the choir, they would all shout and sing together, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what Peter and John must have thought? What the people must have thought? Who just days before had shouted those same words towards Jesus. The stone they thought they had accepted was about to be rejected because that's the pattern. And they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. So let's look at the last appearance of the Hillel in Passion Week's lesson. Back to Matthew in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Here we have the Last Supper in verses 26 through 29. We see Jesus instituting the ordinance of communion. And after doing so, look at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now that's an interesting little detail. And one that shows up here and also shows up in Mark, in in Mark's account of the gospel. But why do we need to know that? I mean, what does it matter if, if Jesus and the disciples sing a hymn together after the first uh, communion and the last Passover? What does it matter? I mean, why would two gospel writers make it a point to tell us that? Well, it's significant because you guessed it. The hymn they sung would have been Psalm 118. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that according to the Talmud, the Jews would sing the Hallel at every Passover. Psalm 113 and 114 was recited before the Passover lamb entered the room. So they would have sung those psalms together before the actual meal. While Judas was still with them in the room, he would have been there for those first couple of psalms. The other songs were sung at various points during or after the meal with Psalm 118 saved for last. That means that these words of the king's distress the king's, the, the Lord's deliverance, the Messiah's rejection, the Messiah's acceptance, all of the goodness and faithfulness of a loving God expressed became one of the last things 
verbally communicated by Jesus before the unspeakable sufferings of Christ began. And at the same time, all around town, others were singing this same song. That that night, Jesus put his words into the mouths of the builders and the rejectors. And the next morning, the whole nation would wake up to see their sacrificial lamb being slaughtered before their eyes. At least five times, Peter and John were exposed to the Hallel of Psalm 118 that week. Once at the triumphal entry, the the week began with Psalm 118 being shouted towards Jesus in praise, this incredibly familiar and well-loved hymn of the Jewish people. Twice at the temple, with the parable of the tenants and Jesus's lament. Then again at the Passover preparation where the audio and the visual representation was enough to overwhelm anyone. And then finally at the Last Supper where Psalm 118 would be the last song Jesus sings hours before his betrayal and suffering greater than any man has ever experienced all all the next day. After all that, Do you think that Peter finally got the lesson? Do you think he got it? Well, let's find out. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Acts 4 gives us the very first instance of the church being persecuted for the cause of Christ. And Peter, of course, is right smack dab in the center of all of it. So here in Acts chapter 4, let's go ahead and start at the beginning with what actually happened here. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrest them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Pretty remarkable. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now get this. Peter looks them in the eye. These are the people who crucified Christ. He looks them in the face and he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter got the lesson. He got the lesson. And look at the next verse. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Friends, this lesson isn't going away. Jesus is the stone. 
Now, I promised you three sections. The meaning of the text, Passion Week's lesson, and finally our response. So I'll do my best to keep this brief and close us out with this. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll conclude with a final look at this passage. Almost 30 years later, after learning the lesson, Peter encourages suffering Christians with these words. Starting in verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, again, it's not an it, it's, an, it's a him. Whoever believes in him, this stone, will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So what does this all mean for us? Well, this is one lesson that means two things to two groups of people. The lesson is simply this. Man cannot change the Messiah by their belief or unbelief. The stone remains unchanged. It is your relationship to the stone that changes everything. Friend, if you are an unbeliever, consider the sweeping testimony of Scripture this morning. You can say you don't believe in him all you want. You can say in your heart there is no God, but that has no effect on God. The stone is here, like it or not, and those who believe in him find him so precious. But those who deny or reject him will eventually be crushed by him. A day is coming, friend, a day is coming sooner than you realize when you will stand before this stone. Don't reject him now. This stone who, who as God became a man, who came to be our Messiah, to be the Messiah and the stone of Israel and to be the glory of Israel, but also us, us, us Gentiles, those of us who, who have been on the outside of this thing. He has extended his grace beyond Israel's borders to be our glory to be our source of strength and comfort, to be our God. He has extended his everlasting love, his steadfast love, and his goodness to us as well. That whoever would believe in his son, that that this stone, this Messiah, the Christ, the one who, who left heaven's glories to become a man, to suffer by men, to live a perfect life, for God, out, out of perfect obedience, he became that perfect lamb, that perfect sacrifice. He is the one who was rejected, not only by the religious establishment, but rejected by men. He was rejected to be accepted. He suffered because that's the pattern, suffering first, then glory. So that whoever would believe in him, so that whoever would put their trust in his sacrifice, for the forgiveness of their sins, that they could be cleansed and they could be, they could be new creatures in Christ so that they could love him and serve him, so they could be born from above, born again, so that their heart of stone could be replaced with a heart of flesh. If you would just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
If you will follow him, serve him, obey him, repent of your sin, repent of your sin and trust in Christ, he will forgive you and he will give you new life in his name. If you are an unbeliever, if you are an unbeliever, then I would beg you, put your faith and your trust in Christ. Don't reject him. Don't be like the religious, religious leaders of the day. Don't, don't come to him in unbelief, knowing better. If you are more afraid of a virus you can't see than the unseen God who has promised to judge all men according to their deeds, then friends, study the Bible for yourself. Get to know this God, this book that was written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, and yet, as we've seen even today, it fits together so perfectly, so perfectly, because there is a divine authorship behind it all. This is God's book. He has orchestrated it. He has put it together, and it can only come together like it has if it has that design author or, or that divine author behind it. So friends, study this book for yourself. Get to know the God of the Bible. Pursue the truth. Believe the truth and submit to the truth because the next time that the Messiah comes, it will be in glory, not suffering. For the believer, now for the believer, for us, I mean, what could be more encouraging than this truth, than this lesson? It is death to one and life to the other. But if it were not for that pattern, suffering first, then glory, It would be death for everyone. I mean, aren't you glad that our Savior came to redeem before he came to rule? But listen, this pattern, it it applies to us as well. We are no greater than our master. He suffered greatly. We will suffer greatly too. He is honored and he is glorified as a result. And we will be honored and we will be glorified as a result. This pattern applies to us as well. It's suffering first, then glory. And if you believe in the living stone, then you are like a living stone, rejected by men, but accepted and precious before God. Whatever this world throws at you, you are a rock built on a rock. They rejected him, and he suffered more than you and I will ever suffer. And as a result, he has been glorified more than than you and I will ever be glorified. But he gives this honor, this blessing of not being put to shame, of not being disappointed. He he gives that to those who believe in him. It is as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friends, it is suffering first, then glory. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you Thank you for orchestrating this great drama of redemption. Thank you for pulling this together and, and creating what you have done. Lord, th- this, is, th- this is so far beyond us to see it go all the way back hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, as you inspired some writer in the Old Testament to pen these words 
of Psalm 118. And how you then use that, how you put it in the mouths of so many people, and how you just constantly brought that lesson to bear upon Peter and John's life and and the other disciples, and how you used it to encourage your son as he faced the cross to see so much truth come together in perfect harmony. Lord, it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Thank you for sending your son to die in the place of sinners. Thank you for sending him into the rejection. First, Lord, I am so glad that he came to redeem before he came to rule. God, thank you for your infinite wisdom, for your love. Lord, we know that you love your son. Lord, we know that you love us to send your son, to crush him in our place, for him to hang on a cross in the place of sinners, to to suffer the consequences and the punishment for our sins. God, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for extending so much, so much steadfast love and so much goodness to us. Lord, this is marvelous in our eyes. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We cannot praise you enough. You are to be praised. You are to be honored. You are to be glorified and followed in every way. And Lord, I I pray that you would continue to Show us wonders from your word. Lord, as we enter into celebrating Passion Week with Good Friday and, and Resurrection Sunday around the corner, Lord, I pray that this entire week that we would focus on you, that we would, that we would not look to the left or to the right. Lord, that we would reach for our Bibles first and that you would continue to show us marvelous things in your word. Lord, we give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. You are worthy of all and more. We just thank you for what you have done and for sending your son in in his name. Amen.